Thank you all for praying with me and with each other and for each other. If you have a Bible, we are going to continue in 1 Corinthians 6 tonight. We intended on covering it in one week last week. Usually I, I, go, I say up front, hey, this is going to take us a couple weeks. But last week I really thought we were going to get through this chapter in one week, which maybe is funny uh, from y'all's perspective. Um, but uh, we only got about halfway through it, uh, and, uh, but we'll get through it tonight. Uh, we'll, um, we'll kind of recap a few things that we talked about last week if you weren't here, and uh, we'll get right into what I think is going to be a really important conversation, uh, one that I think challenges us, but I think at the end of the day, it leaves us in a better place. And, and regardless of what you always, how you always feel when God is confronting you about something or coming to you with something that you didn't know about or maybe you didn't agree with, um, I think when we, when, we, when we accept God's will and go with God's way, we always are, are at a better place. And I think that's something we should be very grateful for and very excited about as we get into God's word. Um, so we opened up 1 Corinthians 6 last week with a conversation starter and primer around the idea that God has been comparing his people. Uh, God has been calling his people, comparing his people to a lot of different things throughout the history of time. But if there's one thing that God has been comparing us to and, and, and uh, calling us to be since the very beginning it would be spotlights, or we could short that up for just a light. But God has been comparing his people to be to, to spotlights since the beginning. And I think if you think about it, um, if there's one thing that God has been set on combating since the beginning of time, um, before our story even came into being, before there were people, uh, when you read, read in Genesis that there was darkness that fell on the face of the deep, that God created the world, he created the heavens, he created the earth, uh, and, and then he set in motion things that, are, that we we know of as, as our reality and as our creation, yet there was this darkness looming. Now, that may speak to the fall that took place in heaven, the rebellion that took place in heaven. We don't know, but we read there in the very beginning of Genesis that there was darkness looming on the face of the earth. And we hear from God in the very first word spoken by God, we get the idea that God is always going to combat darkness with light. And God said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, let there be light. So it's almost as if built into the creation story is God's solution for every time darkness falls, every time that some sort of evil comes against the people, it comes against him, his solution is shine a light into the darkness, right? You go outside, you grab a flashlight, you light something, you, you illuminate the darkness. That has been God's solution since the very beginning. And that thumbprint of God in you is what causes us to follow that same line of fall. Perhaps that was a preview of his tactics for the age to come. Um, after the world fell into sin, after the fall that took place in Eden, uh, from his initial steps towards redeeming the world, his plans have always involved uh, setting a chosen people to be lights, setting apart a chosen people to be lights in their world and do the things that lights do, which I think all of us know what lights do, but just to break it down as granularly as we can, lights are important to expel the darkness, right? That you turn the light on because you want to get rid of the darkness. So why has God been setting people apart to be lights in the world? Is to get rid of darkness. But there's another reason, to offer direction. You turn the light on so that you can see where you're going, right? You, on your ride home tonight, you'll turn your headlights on to see where you're going. You'll be glad that there are spotlights on the road because they help you see where you're going. Yes, they expel the darkness, but they also offer you a sense of direction. But in reality, the, the, the grand scheme of things, what lights do more than anything else is they make everything brighter. They make everything brighter and better because 
of course, you have the visibility, you have direction. So everything is better when things are brighter. So we can see this approach in intent by God throughout history. And we spent last week, a lot of, a lot of last week, chronicling the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, how God has been calling his people to be lights since the beginning. And you can read the Old Testament. And the one story, one thing that's, that's prominent throughout the whole story, from Abraham to Israel, is that God was setting apart a chosen people to be lights in their dark world, to show people how to get to him. And, and of course, God's plan was fully and finally realized through the church, that we would not just be a place in one part of the world shining a light to one group of the world, but we would be a mobile, we would be a group on the move that would be all over the world eventually, shining a light to everyone that God uh, brings our way and that we come in contact with. So Jesus came as God's light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he accomplished God's plan, saving the world by dying for the world. Yes, he set in motion a way for you and I to be saved, to be transformed. And he forever changed how God would interact with people and how people would experience God and make him known. And the difference between the old days and the new day, the new day, the the new era, the new age, is in the Old Testament, the people of God were positioned as reflectors. uh, As reflectors, as in when you're going down the road and you see those little reflectors on on sticks, right? We have some in our parking lot. Uh, They don't have light in them. They reflect light that has come down on them. But that's the old days. The old days, the Old Testament, God's light was being reflected by people. But you and I are more than just reflectors because the Spirit of God lives in us. God's Spirit abides in us. So we are not just reflectors. We're not just reflecting light that, belong, that, go, that, is, that is somewhere else. The source is somewhere else and it's coming onto us and reflecting from us. We are more than reflectors. We are possessors of the light. We are bearers of the light. Does that make sense? That there's a difference in a reflector and an actual light bulb, Right? And I'm glad that we're more than reflectors. I'm glad we have more than just reflectors on the road because we need that, that actual source to give us light. So Jesus put his light in us. He would give us the spirit and by the spirit we are transformed. And that's why when Jesus came on the scene, he made that bold statement, I am the light of the world. But he also said on more than one occasion, you are the light of the world. So which is it? Is he the light or are we the light? He is the light and he puts his light in us and therefore we are possessors and bearers of his light. But I think it's really a big deal for for Jesus to call us something that he also called himself. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? I mean, think about all the things that God says about himself and all the things the Bible says about God and all the names God gives, that Bible gives God. Never are those names shared with you and me, except in this one occasion, right? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, right? I'm, I'm, the, I'm the vine. He never, that ne- there's never a verse that says we are the bread or we are the vine, right? We're always coming off of him. We're the branches, right? We are the ones who are nourished by the bread. But only in one case does Jesus say that we are what he also said he was and is. That's a pretty big thing to share with people, isn't it? So if he is the light, he puts his light in us and we are the light of the world. And we know where the light comes from, right? It's not of ourselves, but it's from him. And if it's in us, it should be shining as it is 
from him. So that's the reality the New Testament is really based on and anchored in. And that's what the New Testament letters are really pushing the church to be, to be the light of the world. And that's why we took it all the way to Revelation last week and we read about how Jesus says to the church in Ephesus and he says to all the churches in Asia that, if, that you need to monitor your lamp. You need to monitor the lampstand because the light that you are bearing could be at risk if you don't take serious the calling over your life. That he says, I'm the light, you're the light, I've given you the light, but it's important that we maintain our connection to God, that we maintain our faithfulness to God, because he told the church at Ephesus that your lampstand will be removed from you, as in you will lose your testimony, you will lose your witness, that your light will not shine. And if your light does not shine, what purpose are you serving? Does that make sense? If we aren't effective at shining bright, that we are falling short of our identity, not just our job, not just an obligation, but our very identity is on the line. Christ-like, our name is on the line. If we are not shining bright, our identity is in question. This shouldn't be a surprise to us as charted it from front to back. Clearly core to God's design for us is in his plan to save the world. So that's where 1 Corinthians is very important because this whole book has been about Paul trying to discipline the church into shape, trying to get the church into shape so that they shine bright. His whole goal in 1 Corinthians is that we would shine as bright as we are called and made to, that our testimony would be pure and powerful. And this is what chapter six is all about. Our testimony is life or death. It's a big deal. I know that's a big statement, but that's the exact truth. A pure and powerful testimony is the difference between hypocrisy and integrity. And we talked about this. Nobody wants to be called a hypocrite, right? But Jesus said, and, and Paul is echoing, that the difference in a hypocrite and someone who is faithful to their calling, the difference in hypocrisy and integrity is a testimony. So either we are an effective witness, a bright light, or we are a weight around the church's neck. We are a black eye. And I don't know about you, but a bright light's a lot better than a black eye when it comes to which are we and what name do we have. Those are harsh words. But they are very true. Jesus called the Pharisees, and, and we read this a couple of nights ago. Jesus you, referred to the Pharisees as blind guides, blind guides. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have someone guide me through a, 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 an area, especially a challenging area, I don't want them to be blind guides. I want them to know where they're going and know where they're leading me. Uh, but he, he called them blind guides because he said they were not only misrepresenting God and they not only were not getting to God themselves, but they were leading people away from God as they were trying to and claiming to lead people towards God. But he said, you're actually leading people away from God. You're making followers, but you're not getting people closer to God you're getting people farther from God, yet they look to you because they think you're the closest thing to him. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would, who would or would want to, to enter in. So what is he saying? That you all are blind guides. Now, so why is it so important for the church to hear? Because if we are the guides, 
and it's up to us to be light in the world, then if we're headed in the wrong direction, guess who? Guess what? Those that follow us will go in the direction that we are taking them in. And if we're not leading anybody, then nobody's going to go anywhere because, again, there's no one to follow. So Paul has been trying to weed out and sort through any potential hypocrisy in the church at Corinth. Now, in chapter 5, he addressed some people who were just living it up in sin. And he said, listen, God's going to remove the tares. God's going to protect the wheat. But now he's moving on to those that remain, those that are by their own admission, trying to be faithful and trying to, to, to do what is right, yet he sees that they are getting hung up on some things that are potentially damaging to their testimony. And he says, we can't have this. Even if you feel like you have a, re- a reason to be bold about this or to be dead set on this, he says, we can't risk our testimony because our testimony is on the line. He, he's written about their relationship to the church, their relationship to God's word, And then in chapter 6, he gets into the specifics. He says, our testimonies are on the line in our response to sin, our response to being sinned against, our recovery from sin, and our resistance to sin. So in how we individually respond to when we're sinned against, because boy, are we sinned against in this world. It's going to happen. People are going to be not not good to us, and that's going to happen. So how we respond is important. Uh, and, and how we recover from our own sin, how we resist sin is important. So we briefly t- covered this last week. We're going to reread verses 1 through 7 and then briefly touch on the response to sin and then we'll focus on the last two points in our remaining time. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? As in, hey, y'all have got some problems with each other. People have sinned against you. Rather than going to God's word about how to settle it, you're going to go to the courts and go to the law. And that's what he's referring to. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So he says, hey, that the trivial things that cross us up with each other, the things that make me mad at you and the things that make you mad at me and the things that, and he's not referring to murder or he's not referring to things that are actually, you know, people's lives being in danger. He's just referring to the trivial things that get us at odds with each other. The things that we could very well go to court against each other with if we wanted to. And and sometimes we are justified in doing so. He says, church, be careful how quick we are to go against each other and to remain against each other. Verse three. Do you not know, and he's saying do you not know because they didn't know. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So he's making it very clear that the Bible gives us what we need to be able to navigate the issues that we have with each other. Because if our relationship with each other go in a wrong direction, then the light that we bear to each other or the light that we bear to those around us potentially is affected. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? And he's referring to those outside the church. I say this to your shame. And and again, Paul's saying, I'm saying this to make you feel bad. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? So he says, hey, if you know your Bible, you should have a voice inside of you that says, hey, this is how I handle this. This is how I react to when I'm sinned against. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers, as in we're taking matters into the world and we're shining a light into the world or we're being an example to the world that does not, that is not becoming of what Christians should be like and do and, and, and their behavior. 
And, and verse seven is a very, very difficult verse to hear, a harder verse to preach, even as hard as you may think it is to hear. It's a hard verse to preach. Now, therefore, it is already another failure for you to go to law against one another. Why do you not rather? Now, our response to this question is, is, is I think, pretty obvious. Well, uh, duh, I'm not going to let someone do me wrong. Why would I do that? But what does Paul ask? Why would you not rather accept the wrong? Why would you not rather let yourself be cheated? Well, Paul, I'll tell you why I don't think I should be cheated, because that's not fair. And if I have an odd against someone or someone did me wrong and I have a chance to make it right, then heck yeah, I'm going to go and, and, and get what is mine. Now, this is really important. Again, we touched on it last week. I want to repeat it just for a minute. This response to sin is regarding what we do when we are sinned against. What is our initial reaction when someone wrongs us? And perhaps it's within our rights and perhaps it makes sense to react accordingly. But Paul says that Christians must be careful how they respond to sin and consider if their response is full of light to counter the sin that was committed against them, or is it just carrying its own dose of darkness, bringing more darkness to the table? You know, the old saying, two wrongs don't make a right. I think that's what he's talking about here. Maybe this is never more important to consider than when we've been wronged and our instinct and even our rights move us to respond in a particular way. And I don't expect people, the average person, even the average Christian to agree with me, but this is not me, this is God's word. So again, I don't expect the average person to open the Bible that doesn't read it all the time and read this verse and think, well, that makes sense because it doesn't make sense. Because our instinct is to get what is ours, to defend and, and and again we push back so again i want you to hear that when he says why would you not rather let yourself be cheated be wronged christians we ought here's what paul is saying here i think more than anything that we ought to not be as sensitive as the world is over things pertaining to the material and temporary matters we ought to be ready not we ought not to be ready to throw aside our testimony in order to sure things up for us materialistically and temporary gain. We must be willing to sacrifice our rights if it means protecting our testimonies and the other person's potential faith in Jesus. Now, we, we read some verses from Matthew last week, and, and I want to echo those tonight. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And again, this is the point in the audience where people are thinking, man, has this guy lost his mind? I mean, what are you, what are you, what are you doing, Jesus? People are walking away as he's saying this stuff because who in the world would, would, who would do this? Who would believe this? Who would preach this? If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that... Anytime you see the, 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 the phrase, so that, in the Bible, it's, it's in, the, in the Greek, it's a special clause that means this is instrumental in terms of you getting to where you need to go. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. 
Now, I've got textbooks that were used in Bible colleges within our generation, maybe a little bit before my generation, but I've got textbooks that were used in Bible colleges that put pastors in churches like ours where this passage in this chapter was, was referred to as, this refers to as some future reality, this is impossible for someone to live out in this world. And, and I look at those, and I look at that and I'm thinking, what? You're just gonna hand wave this whole passage and say, oh, you can't do that, that's impossible, you can't love your enemies. Somebody slaps you on your cheek, you're not supposed to just let them take advantage of you. That's not the, whoa, 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 that's not what you're supposed to do. You, that's not what Jesus meant. Just turn the page, that's for some other future generation. You know why I think that the entire generation of Christians have grown up and have been brought up and looks at this and thinks, that's crazy? That's just for super saints? You know why? Because we just ignored this for years and years and years. For hundreds of years. But, but what does that last line say? So that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus acknowledging? That you're not in heaven, you're on earth. And it may feel like this is not possible. But I say to you, it must be your way of life. Whew, that's pretty hard, I know. Hey, it's Wednesday night. I don't know if I was ready for that. I wasn't ready for that. All right, I think this is the hardest thing for, the hardest and most difficult things for Christians to, 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 to accept because our flesh says, that's crazy. Why would we do that? But you know, there's things in the Bible that you don't have to pray about. The Bible says do it, you, you, you do it. That's why the church is so confused. I think our testimony is so ineffective because we pick and choose often what we choose to be non-negotiable. And Jesus says, love your enemies. And what is verse seven? And again, I, I, I rack my brain around it. I look at verse seven and I'm thinking, That's, that, nobody's gonna believe that. No one's gonna do that, Paul. Why not let yourself be wronged? Why not? And you know what he's saying there? Get over it. I don't wanna get over it. I know, I don't want to get over it either. I'm there with you. If your feelings are hurt, if someone disagrees with you and you want your way and they want their way, he says, hey, Christian, you can swallow your pride. You have the power within you to be Christ-like. And that sourness, that soreness, that bitterness, that hatefulness, that meanness, that unchrist-likeness, you have the power to rebuke that. When our nature says hold a grudge, don't forgive, demand retribution, dig your heels in until you get your way, until you get even, Paul says, you cannot throw your testimony away in order to get your way. You hear that? We cannot throw away our testimony in order to get our way. I'm not saying that we don't have a right to demand our way. But what is Paul saying? There's something more important. There's something more important. We must always look back to the cross. Jesus forgave those who crucified him. He forgave us, right? Who crucified him. Our sins put him there. It was our darkness that swallowed him and it was his light that saved us. When our offense against Jesus added up, he said, Father, forgive them 
as, and he says to you and I, as I have done to you, do unto others. This is the most powerful force in the world when Christians get this. I think the this, this way to summarize it is if we are justified by the grace of Jesus, we give up our right to justify holding grudges against others. Pretty simple, isn't it? If we are justified by the grace of Jesus, we have given up our right to justify holding grudges. And listen, I learned this. My mom taught me this a long time ago. I'm sure preachers have taught this for years. The person you're hurting is yourself. You might win, you might get, it, get what was yours, you might, you might have the victory, but something inside of you dies. <laughs> something inside of you gets darker when you go that way. And that's why Paul says, would you not rather, should you not rather be cheated? Paul says, Paul, I don't really know. I don't think that's what I really, I don't really agree with that, Paul. And, and again, I think the only way we get better, the only way we get this right is if we admit that we got it wrong. But that's a whole other sermon. So let's move on. The next two points that chapter six addresses is our recovery from sin and our resistance to sin. These are important when it comes to our testimonies. Let's read verse eight through 11. He says, no, you yourselves do wrong and she and you do these things to your brethren. So not only are you being sinned against, but you also are sinning against other people. And that's kind of a, a, an important thing that maybe makes us react the way we do. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. I, I love that last part. In this passage, he talks to us about how our testimonies ought to reflect our own recovery from sin, right? Such were some of you. And maybe our own lack of recovery is why we react wrongly when we are sinned against. A few things to glean from this passage. Again, in verse eight, he says, you yourselves do wrong. So the reason, Paul, Paul comes to this conclusion, the reason why we get so bent out of shape when we are wronged is because maybe there's something in us that hasn't fully recovered. Let me explain. The reason why we have a hard time being Christ-like to those that sin against us is because maybe we've still got some sin in us that needs to have Christ help us and deliver us from. Our response to sin is questionable because our recovery from sin is in question. Now, he's not saying that, they're, that, those, that we're committing the same sins He's just saying in general, they are committing sins against each other. And he's telling the Corinthians, he says, you are still, y'all have got some sins going on and, and, and that, can't be the, that, can't be, that can't be allowed to go on. That can't be allowed to remain. They are indignant, which is angry. They are indignant about sins committed against them, but they're indifferent about sins they're committing. And I think this is really common for Christians and it's common for me. Listen, I love preaching against sin that I don't commit and I have no trouble and I have no struggle with. I'm really good at preaching against sin that I don't commit because, hey, I don't have to feel, I don't have to work through my own problems to get to the point of preaching about it, right? I am really good and I have fun preaching against sin that other people commit. But, I'm indifferent about sins I commit. And that's the issue that Paul has with the Corinthians. 
In verse 9, he makes a big statement. He says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, hey, you, you, do you not know? Nobody else's sin is going to keep you out of God's kingdom. Only your own sin is going to do that. You hear that? We get really riled up about sins that are done against us, but the real question is what sins are we still committing because they might keep us from accessing God's best and they will keep us from getting to God's best. So we think someone who hurts us or does something that we don't like affects us, but in reality, the things that are costing us come from our own heart. You see how our flesh plays tricks on us? Oh, I can't believe what they're doing. And we feel like they're, keep, they're, they're keeping us from where we want to be. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, they shouldn't sin against you. And yeah, they're going to pay for it. But I'm not worried about what they did to you. I'm worried about you because only you can keep you from where God wants you. They didn't do it. They don't stop you. They might get in the way, but they're not going to keep you from it. You see what he's saying? There is a temptation within us to fixate on other people's sins and how we've been wronged. And this is our flesh's way of deflecting our own sin. Think about it. And, and, and I don't want to get on soapbox about people who aren't here, but think about the common excuse for why people don't go to church that claim to be Christians. Well, I got hurt. Well, they did me wrong. And I was the other. And hey, I hear people. I'm like, listen, you're going to let them keep you from God? I don't think that's how it works. You are responsible for you. So let's not be distracted, even though somebody might have did us wrong. Don't be distracted about what, how someone might have hurt your feelings. Because that's just your flesh's way of keeping you from dealing with what might be going on in you. We must be careful of our obsession of sins that we have not committed and maybe never will, aren't, temptation, aren't tempted to, because that's the devil's tactics to distract us. So I want you to hear verse 7 through 9 together. Therefore, it is an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves are doing wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So what are you saying there? The people that sin against you, God's gonna take care of them. It's not your place to go win against them or go score against them or go pay them back god is going to take care of them let him take care of them leave vengeance to him you know how much lighter we get whenever we allow god to be god and quit being so consumed about people that we ultimately don't have power over anyway so paul's saying let god deal with them but also let god deal with you Whew, I think that's a big statement. I think that's a revelatory idea. Because we may be keeping ourselves from standing in the best that God has for us. Someone may hurt us, but they can't keep us from God. Only we can do that. Only our sin, not their sin. So you know what this does in my heart? It makes me far less worried about other people's behavior and much more concerned about my behavior and more diligent to get it right. But you know what, this, what, it, what really is at the heart of this? This thing in us that wants to rank and file sin. And listen, I'm telling you, I think all of us know this. But it's in all of us to allow things that are done to us to make us indignant, 
that we no longer extend grace that, and we forget that we ourselves depend on grace. And, and I think this is a pretty easy connection to make that if we quit extending grace, there's a good chance we've quit depending on it. That you can, you can follow your own heart. The moment you quit extending grace is the moment you quit depending on it. So Paul says to us, why are you so distracted and disgruntled by all the sin around you? Do you not know that it's the sin within you that's, that's causing you to be in danger of missing out on what God has for you? But notice what he does in verse 9 and 10. He puts all the sin on the table at once. This is important. That when, we go to, when you go to court, and I've been there for tra- traffic violations, but I've been in the line before. And I've been in line with people who've committed a whole lot of different violations. They aren't all there for traffic reasons. And some people get brought in by the authorities or by the officers because they can't legally walk in in the line. But you know what happens? Everybody goes before the same judge. We all line up together, right? I'm there because I sped. Somebody else is there because they, you know, stole from somebody or did something, you know, whatever. Like we all go before the same judge, whether we go in the same door or not, we end up in the same courtroom. Paul does not differentiate between types of sin, He mentions adulterers and fornicators in the same list that he mentions idolaters and intoxicated in the same list that he mentions troublemakers and greedy people. Now, we might would think that some of those sins are more egregious than others, but Paul would say, all sin is equally offensive to God. That this list is not in order of offensive, right? He starts out with fornicators. He ends with extortioners or those that take advantage of people. We might think, well, hey, I took advantage of somebody. I I charged somebody a little bit more than I should have charged for them, but that's not as bad as worshiping some idol. It's not as bad as cheating on my spouse, right? Come on, Paul. Paul says, hey, in God's eyes, it's all offensive. It may carry different earthly damage, earthly weight, but it's all the same to God. James put it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of it all. So what is this meant to do? It's meant to humble us and drive us all before God, seeking grace and reform through him. No matter what we've done, we need forgiveness from God. We all sin differently to different degrees, but in God's eyes, we equally need the same provision of, of, of Jesus's blood. And that's why it's important pertaining to our testimony because we should be communicating a message that says, God has saved us and we're giving that same grace to others. But notice here, Paul is referring to those who commit these sins as being identified by these sins. He doesn't refer to people who commit these sins. He refers to them as categorized by their sin. And and Paul's saying we can't excuse any sin because even the mildest of sins run the risk of taking over our lives. All sin enslave and encompass, as in consume. He says, he doesn't just, he doesn't say people who commit extortion, people who are greedy or covet. He's not saying people who commit these sexual sins. He's referring to them as those people, as people who have been consumed by those sins. He wholly identifies them by those sinful choices. The good news in this text, though, is verse number 11. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That tells me that everybody in the categories that he mentions can be saved, can be forgiven, can be changed. And if you're in those categories, you can be forgiven. You can be saved. 1 John 1, 7 says that 
Let's go to the next one. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All sin can be erased and it can be escaped. Even as Christians and saved people, we are gonna battle against temptation. But if we understand the importance of our witness, we cannot let our guard down lest we fall short of our purpose and our placement in the body of Christ. I want you to listen in closing to the rest of this chapter and we'll make a few remarks before we dismiss. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So he's making that statement as a Christian that we're going to resist the power of sin, even if we may think we have the excuse to do what we want to do. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, but God will destroy both in in them. Now he's going to use the example of sexual sin to make a point. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God has raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot or members of another, of of a sinful lifestyle? Certainly not. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is, not, is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And here's what he's saying. That anything that we allow to become a part of our identity, a sinful choice that we make, it runs the risk at separating us from Jesus. And he's using this example of sexual immorality to, to make a, 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 really, a, a really obvious and visible point. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And back in verse 14, we have a resurrected body. So why would you wanna rebury yourself? Do you see the picture there? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? who you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body and in your spirit, which are God's, because that spirit is his light. So what is he saying here? We must resist sin's pull. How can the resurrected body of Christ be joined to sin? Think about it. We are the body of Christ. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. He died and in him we died and our sin was crucified. But now we live with him. Now we are his body. Verse 14, we are the resurrected glorified body of Christ. How can we now willingly and carelessly bring sin on the body of Jesus? What an insult. What an affront. And this passage uses the example of sexual immorality, but this applies to all sin. Can Christ be joined to hatred, lust, greed, jealousy, spite, bitterness? Can Christ be joined with a a hateful heart when he is the love of God? Can Christ be joined to lust that says, I want what God says I should not have? Can Christ be joined with greed that says, I'm gonna keep it all for myself because I believe it's all mine when it's from God? Can Christ be joined with jealousy that says, hey, you have what I want and I'm gonna get mad at you for it? Can Christ be joined with spite that says, because I didn't get my way and you got your way, I'm gonna let you know it and I'm gonna treat you differently? Can Christ be joined with bitterness when he's forgiven us of our sin? Again, we could go down the line of all the different things that spawn all the different sins. Can Christ be joined with these things? No. What kind of testimony would we have if we are wallowing in the dirt 
from the grave that Jesus rose us up from. Not a good one. Of course, we brought all these things to him because we are not perfect, but maybe if we thought on these things more often, we would be more aware. I love the way Paul put it in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let me ask you this question in closing. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God because Christ lives in me. Let me ask you this question. Who's living through you? The sinner you used to be or the savior who set you free? The sinner you used to be is gonna hold grudges. It's gonna excuse your own sin. It's gonna deflect all the sin that we might struggle with and look at all the people around us. The sinner we used to be is gonna keep bringing sin to Jesus and gonna try to join that and gonna try to live one lifestyle on Sunday and every other lifestyle Monday through Saturday. But the savior who set us free, if he lives in us, he shines his light through us. He will make you react to sin differently. He will make you recover from sin fully and he will make you resist sin totally. It all comes down to who's living through you. If we've been crucified with Christ, we don't live anymore. He lives through us. And and here's here's the big deal. Sometimes it's not about what we see, it's about what others see. And it'll be obvious if there's light coming out of us or if we're just blending in in the dark. Hope you'll think on these things with me this week. Hope you'll reread this chapter again and again and think about what God's saying to you and what God's saying to all of us. How are we reacting to sin? Have we recovered from our own sin? And are we resisting sin? Who's living through you? The sinner or the savior? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what I think is such a sobering and important passage of Scripture, an important word from you. God, help us to see that our flesh often deflects the sin that we are committing by looking at the sin around us. But Lord, help us not, for our own detriment, get distracted. And help us examine our hearts and examine what we have going on and examine the sin that we are still harboring. And Lord, help us to be honest. Are we bringing that to Jesus? And are we still trying to attach to Jesus the sin that he defeated on the cross? God forbid we would commit those, that, that sin. God forbid we would do that to you, Jesus. When you have raised us up and made us new. Lord, I don't know what everybody here struggles with tonight. I don't know what everybody here has struggled with and will struggle with, but I do know this, that you have put your spirit in them. You have purchased them and you want them to be a bright and shining light in their world. You want them to stay bright for your honor and for your glory and for somebody else's salvation. So Lord, would you help us if we become disconnected? Would you reattach us? Would you secure us? And would you shine into us that we might shine for you? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.